Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. you who like to uh, remind me that Donald Trump is the most pro-life president um, that, you know, frankly, we've ever had in terms of a very public advocate of of pro-life concerns. Um, And so what I want to do today is actually give you um, fodder for a more fully orbed approach to the conversation than just, than just uh, he's really good at holding the line on Roe, or he's really good um, when it comes to the conversation about abortion. Uh, because the the president of the United States is actually uh, doing uh, a, a really good job as a whole life pro-life president. And for those of you who haven't thought about what it means to be a whole life pro-life person, um, it means that we support single moms. It means that we support um, and actually take into our homes children who don't have families. It means that we come alongside and provide in material ways for survivors of human trafficking. It means that we uh, support uh, parental leave and things like that. And some of you um, are going to rebuff those ideas, and you're going to say, that's not the pro-life agenda. And I am going to say, if you're only pro-life for the preborn and you're not pro-life for those who are born into this world Um, in circumstances that are very, very challenging, then you have to really think about the way you define being pro-life. So I am pro-life from conception to natural death. And that means that there are some interventions that I would not advocate for in terms of of keeping people alive beyond uh, the point when they would naturally die. Um, But it also means that I am uh, not supportive of of those technologies that um, that bring about human life um, in ways that are not natural. So there you go. I I have a well-defined ethic that is pro-life, and it's pro-life for all of life and whole life and every life. And so I want you to think through how you define the parameters of your pro-life position. Um, for those of you who want to read up on um, some things that I would be pointing to here, the First Lady has a uh, initiative called Be Best. On July the 30th, the Be Best uh, initiative began advocating that every child find a loving, safe, and forever home. Uh, America's kids, this is the First Lady, America's kids need us now more than ever. The disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic have had a serious impact on America's children and those who care for them, from parents and teachers to child welfare workers and foster families. The Trump administration is committed to ensuring that children benefit from the care and support of loving, permanent families, preferably in their own homes whenever possible. We're doing all we can to establish common-sense solutions that best serve children in the welfare system. Uh, Talking here about the 400 children and youth in foster care, 124,000 of them awaiting permanent placement. The the First Lady of the United States wants to see those 124,000 children in 
permanent homes in forever families uh, and Christians ought to uh, ought to be first in line to step up uh, to do that. So there you go. You want to be on the side of the first lady, get involved in the Be Best initiative uh, related to foster care in the United States. The first daughter, Ivanka Trump, uh, is spearheading the effort of the Trump administration, which announced on, let's see, what's the date line on this? August the 4th, uh, Trump administration announced more than $35 million in Justice Department grants to organizations that provide safe housing for victims of human trafficking. Um, and so, again, this is a pro-life agenda item if you understand pro-life as whole life, all of life, redemptive life, the life of flourishing. We also have um, from the OPM, which is the Office of Personnel Management, they have issued their interim final rule uh, authorizing uh, paid leave. It's the Federal Employee Paid Leave Act as a part of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2020. It goes into effect. Uh, Federal employees can substitute 12 weeks of paid leave for the same amount of time of unpaid leave um, that was authorized in 93. So you can get 12 weeks of paid leave as a new parent, either uh, for a child naturally born to you or a child you adopt. Pretty cool, huh? All right. Those are pro-life agenda items that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, is uh, advancing through his administration. There are others, but I thought that I would fill your basket with goodies today. There you go. Uh, Talking points for the day ahead. Next up, Bill English is joining me. Um, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to lead off with a listener question. Here's the listener question that I'm going to ask Bill. Hey, as a Christian, how do I respond when a friend I work with loses their job? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcoming back, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. All right, Bill, here's a listener question. You know, keeping in mind that I am a listener as well as a speaker. Uh, (laughs) So you listen to yourself, huh? I do. I do. I listen to myself, and sometimes I need counsel. So here we go. Uh, Listener question. As a Christian, how how do I respond when a friend I work with loses their job? Uh, First, I think you listen to them and you empathize with them. Uh, and then you things that you can actually do that might actually add value to them is to put them in contact with others who might know of something or someone who can be helpful to them. So finding good jobs is all about networking. And networking is all about getting out and meeting people and having coffee and that kind of thing. So you think through your contact list and you say, who might I know uh, that this person could benefit from meeting, and would the person that I know benefit from meeting that this from this individual who's out of a job? So you really get in the position of being a connector, is what I call it. You're a, you you become a connector, and then you also make yourself available to them anytime. You know, phraseology. Let, let me know what I can do. And with LinkedIn today, I think uh, you make sure you're linked to them and say, hey, run through my entire network. If there's anybody you want to meet, I'll make introductions, that kind of thing. Oh, I feel like I might get a gold star then. Um, I have uh, I have done what you have recommended. Um, let's also give people the one not to do, what not to do thing. Yeah, you know, phrases like, well, you know, I'm sure you'll find something. 
you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll happen. Uh, that can come across not as encouragement, but almost as patronizing. There can, there can be a fine line there sometimes. So what I, how I usually phrase it is I say, as often as God brings you to my mind, I will pray for you and I will remember to reach out to you. And so uh, those, those are more meaningful things and those are things that, that Christians can understand. All right. So I really appreciate that. Thanks. All right, yeah, Bill, you've um um you and I are going to talk about as Christians and maybe as the church, big C and then as it's lived out in small C's, um how we could actually be incubators of uh of new entrepreneurial initiatives of a next generation of Christian entrepreneurs. Um this is really kind of a, a fun conversation to have uh and allows us to capitalize on the networks that we have within the church and also the resources that we have when we gather together. Um, so sort of cast the vision for this. Yeah, well, the, this is a big vision of mine, even though I don't, we don't talk about it often on air. I actually uh, was, was going through a history of Back the Bible and business of my writings and podcasts as I'm writing my book, and I ran across this, uh, the interview that Austin and I had back in 2016 on this very topic. And so I, I, I did some more research. When you look at the census government or, or, or the census statistics, uh, the census keeps track of employer-based businesses, how many of them are in the United States. Back in 2007, we had 6 million of them. Then we went through the Great Recession. We lost some. Guess how many we have now in 2017? That's the latest numbers that they have. It's still 6 million businesses. We haven't grown the number of businesses in the last... 11, 12, or 13 years, and yet we have grown employment by these businesses from 120 million to 128 million. So we have the same number of businesses employing 8 million more people, and they've added, in, in the aggregate, 1.7 trillion to the payroll from where it was in 2007. It's now, uh, in, in 2017, it was 1.7 trillion more. Christian, okay, so take that and set that aside for just a moment. Christian, that's that, that's a data yes, point. Yes, because it sounds Christian, like math. It is. And, and okay. you know what? You're good at math. I know. Math loves you. Right. Writing down here's my numbers. Next, here's the next piece. Christian business owners have an incredibly unique and a significant stewardship call, both to the Lord and to the marketplace. They have influence, they have power, oftentimes they have money that just other people don't have. They have a platform, they have a springboard, so to speak, that, that other people don't have. When we see a, a lessening of the number of businesses in the United States, we should be interpreting that as a, as a lessening of the at the ownership level, a lessening of the being salt and light in the world by Christians. And so, you know, we raise up missionaries in our churches. We raise up pastors in our churches. We raise up prayer warriors in our churches. We'll help fund microloans for new businesses down in Haiti and other places. Let's take a look at raising up a whole generation of entrepreneurs who are wholly committed to Christ, but are going to go out into the marketplace and start businesses and have more influence in the marketplace than what a, a person who simply works, I'm not trying to put that down, but, but just a, a, a person who simply works and is employed by somebody. There's unique stewardship and ministry opportunities here, and I'd like to see us grow in the number of business owners that we have in the United States who are Christians. 
And the mentoring, um, I think, is a huge part of that. All right, Bill, let's uh, let's return to this conversation. Let's talk through some of the uh, things that you're thinking about uh, in terms of this. But let's take a very brief break. I'm talking with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. We're talking about um, how we might all get really excited uh, about advancing the kingdom in this generation by incubating, funding, underwriting, mentoring young Christian entrepreneurs. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Um, all right, Bill. Um, yes. Incubating, encouraging, mentoring, funding, underwriting, new businesses, uh, yes. profitable businesses. So first of all, answer that question, because that's kind of, I think, for a lot of people uh, where they imagine this conversation gets complicated. How could a church... Um, or a group of people in a church fund a a startup that's for profit? Like, this is not something that the church owns. Correct. The church isn't going to fund anything. The church is just going to be act as a connector here. It's going to pull together the older business owners who have experience and financial ability to invest in new businesses. And then it's also going to pull together the younger entrepreneurs who want to start businesses. The third thing that the church provides is actually the teaching and the um, the ethos, so to speak, on what Christian stewardship is and how business owners have a unique stewardship opportunity and responsibility. So I, I view the church here as just being a connector, really. So when we think about um, the way churches might engage in this, what do you what do you envision? What are some of the things you envision? I envision uh, the church supporting and actively promoting that they have a group of, of older business owners who are looking to invest in new businesses primarily for the kingdom motive to replicate themselves as Christian business owners in the marketplace, not necessarily for the profit motive or the ROI, uh, the, the, the return on investment. Now, obviously, they don't want to lose money, and they, they're going to want some kind of a return on their money. But we're, we're looking for a unique group of business owners who want to reinvest and replicate themselves from a Christian business owner perspective because they understand the spiritual impact, the salt and the light, the funneling of monies to ministries, the, the huge benefits that the church has from having a strong group of Christians who own businesses in the marketplace. They want to see that replicated in the next generation. That's what we're really looking for. So um, I think these social impact um, centers at some African-American churches across the country, um, this is happening. It's yes, happening. It is. Yeah. And so I think that there are places where um, we can point to and say this is happening. I do think this is a really great opportunity um, for those who are interested in advancing the conversation um, about uh, not just racial reconciliation, but uh, but a genuine advance in the conversation um, about equity in America and equitable uh, opportunity and access. This is actually one of those points, Bill, where I think that those of us who are white and belong to uh, predominantly white congregations do have the opportunity to say, hey, if we're going to invest in a micro business in the inner city, um, best that we do that uh, alongside a brother or sister in Christ who, you know, is uh, that is literally already their neighborhood. So this is not about um, us only funding 
uh, small business startups for people who look like us or, you know, our neighbor's kid. This is actually an opportunity, I think, to do some real kingdom work in terms of uh, racial reconciliation as well. Uh, Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Business is agnostic when it comes to race. Just the laws. Well, it's it's supposed to be, but let's just but let's just admit that the startup loans have historically not been uh, agnostic. And I think that the church can step in and help level that out. So, I'm I'm in violent agreement with you, Um, (laughs) but I just I, I I think if you do it primarily for racial reconciliation, you'll miss the boat. There's there's I think that can be a core part of it, but. In the end, it has to be to raise up Christian business owners in all ethnicities and across all socioeconomic strata in order to be salt and light in, in, in the marketplace is, is, is really where my head is at on this. Yeah, no, uh, I agree can, with that. Can, can we do racial reconciliation? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a group here in Minneapolis who are trying to raise $50 million to put a fund together. And I thought about contacting them, not because I have any money to, you know, I'm not a rich man by any stretch of the imagination. I don't have, you know, $100,000. I'm, I'm only rich fund. in dogs. And I am, you know, you I am rich in dogs. Rich. I know. You need to become rich in cats. We've, no. well, we've had this conversation. But, uh, but pulling that $50 million together is great if they focus on making sure that the businesses are actually viable, that the businesses are well-funded, and that the owners are going to be taught not just how to run a business, but how to be salt and light in the marketplace. And that, that last piece, being salt and light in the marketplace as a business owner, is the core of my call. That's why Bible and business exists. I write content out there that I can't find anywhere else. And it's not because I'm great and all that. It's just that this content is so much needed by Christian business owners, and they don't even know that they need it. Uh, it's we have such an incredible as 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 a group of I, I get I estimate there's about two million of us. We have such an incredible opportunity to push the kingdom forward in the marketplace simply by. Uh, fulfilling God's purposes for business. Those are the things that I would be very interested in seeing people fund, not me, not Bible and business, but fund the concepts as we learn about uh, 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 Christian stewardship and the incredible responsibilities and opportunities that Christian business owners have. It's amazing. And let's, and let's remember also that all ministry, whether it's churches or parachurches, all of it is funded by profitable business. There's not one ministry out there that doesn't get its money ultimately from a profitable business. So we need more Christians going into business. We need more Christians starting businesses. And, but they need to not, not just know how to make money. They need to know how to be salt and light in the marketplace. Yeah, so that, um, that leads us to like a conversation about a post that might be entitled something like, Success Isn't Sinful. I, like, I mean, success is not inherently sinful. I mean, if if there are not successful businesses that are generating um, over and above what the needs of their employees are, or the needs of the uh, of the of the business itself, then there is not going to be the overflow of resources that funds every ministry out there, including this one. So there you go. Right. So thanks be to so, God for the success that people experience in order that ministry can be funded and the kingdom advanced. So maybe next week we look at those four purposes of business, because if you can measure your business on God's purposes, uh, then you will be successful both economically and spiritually. So maybe that's okay, our that's topic Okay, that's good. Let's just week. tee that up. 
We'll just tee that All up. All right. All right. Uh, in the meantime, you guys can check out what Bill is working on at BibleAndBusiness.com. And maybe next week you can also tell us uh, about changes afoot at the website. Yep. Happy to do so. Okay. Sounds good. All, All right. right. We'll be right Thanks. back. Thanks, man. You bet. Uh, okay. So, um, Craig Blomberg is a professor at Denver Seminary, distinguished professor of New Testament. Um, he's also what I would describe as a person who very freely engages in the primary questions that people are asking about whether or not the Christian faith continues to be believable. The believability of the Christian message today. And so he's now got a book out on that topic. Can we still believe in God? Craig Blomberg up next. This is Max Lucado. I have a feeling most people who defy and deny God do so more out of fear than conviction. For all our chest pumping and braggadocio, we're anxious folk. We can't see a step into the future, can't hear the one who owns us. No wonder we try to bite the hand that feeds us, but God reaches and touches. If he's touching you, let him. Mark it down. God loves you, and he loves you with an unearthly love. And you can't win it by being winsome. You can't lose it by being a loser. But you can be blind enough to resist it. Don't. For heaven's sake, don't. For your sake, don't. Others demote you. God claims you. Let the definitive voice of the universe say, you are part of my plan. This is Max Lucado. Dr. Craig Blomberg. He's a distinguished professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. He's written, contributed to, and edited several books. Today, we're going to talk about his latest sort of contribution to the contemporary conversation about whether or not we can still believe in God. So can we still believe in God? Craig Blomberg, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me. So we are uh, we are people who are living in a unique time. I mean, that's true of every generation. But we have access sort of simultaneously and instantaneously to information about things that are happening all over the world. I can actually know just how bad things are almost everywhere um, in an instant. And so when we start when we start in this generation having a conversation about evil and its prevalence, um, it's different than the kinds of conversation that that people would have had in the past about that same question. It's interesting to me that you lead off with the question of evil um, and the question of suffering. So let's just uh, let's just start there in terms of why does that lead your list of the 10 questions that we have to answer when we're considering whether or not we can still believe in God? I don't have uh, an empirical poll to say that it is the single biggest reason for people not to believe, but certainly having surveyed uh, a lot of literature, a lot of websites, blog sites, and just talking to people, including people who have uh, once claimed to believe and given up their faith, it seems to be about the most common thing I discover. All right. And so when we're talking about 
the list of questions, the list could have been a lot longer than this. Um, and even all the questions aren't framed as questions, but they are ultimately they are ultimately questions. You and I don't have uh, time this morning to cover all 10. Okay. Um, but I am curious, just in terms of the approach that you took, because the question, can we still believe in God, um, suggests that there was a time that maybe it was easier to believe in God. I think a lot of people feel that way, um, and your comment at the outset about uh, uh, our ability to get news, and unfortunately a lot of it is bad, um, instantaneously, I think is is very perceptive. Uh, I remember talking to my mother who grew up as a girl during uh, World War II and on a farm in Iowa, and, you know, what was it like? Well, occasionally we heard a little brief snippet of something on the radio. That was it. <laughs> and so if you want to uh, convince yourself that uh, the world is so bad that there can't possibly be a God, now's, now's the time to do it. And when, when, when you and I, as people of faith, approach the question, uh, my guess is that our starting place is different than people who are asking this question from a place of no faith from or the place of non-faith. Help me as a person of faith understand um, that I'm entering into a conversation with a person who does not believe or maybe does not trust is a better word here, does not trust that God is or God is good. There, there certainly are differences um, for people who were not raised uh, around any Christian influences. Um, but it's fascinating to me that um, the idea of, of being disappointed or even traumatized with life circumstances um, is, is a universal uh, experience. And uh, the number of times uh, people get mad at a God they don't believe in is is rather striking <laughs> because it's almost as if there's something uh, intuitive that that says there has to be somebody responsible for this that that we can blame uh, if all if all you have is um, uh, naturalistic evolution then uh, why get upset why why even define anything as evil in the first place you know one of the um, comments that I made. This is in watching um, uh, videos in, in in the immediate aftermath of a tornado in Texas. So this has actually been a, a, several years ago. I was amazed. Uh, the number, every single video had the same audio. Um, every single person who was videoing the devastation that was taking place was saying the same thing. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Um, when you watch the videos of the explosion in Beirut last week, although it's not all of those, uh, all, the audio in all of those is not English. Um, right. The most, the most frequent thing that is said is, oh God, oh God, oh God. We, we do instinctively cry out to God mm. when, when we're in the midst of disaster, like they're, it's like we know he's there because because we're not big enough to handle what we're experiencing. That's a very good way of putting it. 
All right. So you approach the conversation um, of these 10 questions. Can we still believe in God? The, the 10 questions that uh, we're going to approach in this contemporary conversation, you approach them um, really with a look at who God is uh, and what God has done. So why is there this conversation about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do um, before you get to the questions? I try because a lot of people have written on these topics before, not just to rehash the same uh, debates, but to go to the New Testament, which is my area of specialty, and look for things that perhaps have not been focused on as much, or in my opinion, maybe enough. And I am struck over and over again by Second Peter chapter 3, uh, and its uh, discussion to people in those days, in the first century, who were saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything is going on as it has since creation. And uh, in a sense, Peter's answer is to say, um, no, it hasn't. And uh, there have been divine interruptions in the past. And from a Christian point of view, of course, the um, most significant interruption has been Jesus, his incarnation, his death and resurrection. Um, but then that... Uh, Christian people throughout history have always uh, helped to mitigate suffering. Sadly, some have exacerbated it also, but uh, the amount of humanitarian work that's been done has always been disproportionately uh, done by Christians. But then the point that, that Peter really comes to is um, ultimately God is going to make all things right. Um one day, uh, everything uh, on earth uh, will be laid bare, and judgment day is coming. That's not something we can prove. Uh, we haven't lived through it yet. Uh, that's the piece that uh, we have to take by faith. Um, but it's what is missed out on in today's discussion. A generation or more ago, uh, people talked a lot about uh, heaven and hell. Um, you don't hear that as much anymore. Uh, and now it's it's all about the present. Uh, but we need, as believers, to keep stressing that uh, God has promised to make all things right. And that's not just a fairy tale, because we can look back and see what he's already done as a foretaste of that. All right, Dr. Craig Blomberg and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. The book is, Can We Still Believe in God?, conversation about 10 very provocative contemporary questions that I think we all need to not only be able to answer ourselves, but converse, uh, enter into conversations with others about these very, very frequently uh, asked questions today. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're my defender. still believe in God? Answering 10 contemporary challenges to Christianity. My guest is Dr. Craig Blomberg from Denver Seminary. Um, Dr. Blomberg, let's uh, let's dive into a couple of the questions. Um, there are 10. We could pick any one of them. Um, I find uh, questions 2, 5, and 10 particularly intriguing today. Um, must all the unevangelized go to hell? And what is hell? Um, no. <laughs> and it is the uh, complete uh, separation from God and all things good. And yet there's a very long chapter on this topic. So uh, I do think that when we when we consider 
these questions. There are sort of short form ways to answer them that um, a Christian might be comfortable um, offering. But the reality is the question goes much deeper than a short answer, which is why you you so significantly unpack it. So let's unpack the hell question a little bit. (laughs) There are scary pictures in Scripture. Um, Perhaps the two most common involve uh, a lot of fire and outer darkness. But as has been pointed out frequently, those cancel each other out if either one is is made absolute or complete. Um, And so much more probable, we have uh, vivid metaphors uh, for uh, the painful exclusion from God. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks uh, more literally without using either fire or darkness about um, being excluded from his presence. And it's interesting that uh, in a little-known uh, bit at the end of uh, one of Jesus' parables in Luke 12, 48 and, uh, 47 and 48, he talks about um, the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it would be beaten with, with many um, blows, but uh, the one who didn't know it and didn't do it would be beaten with few blows. Uh, so there really is a sense that um, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And uh, the more uh, people understand of the nature of God and uh, his revelation and have had access to uh, a Christian witness and then reject it, uh, are worse off than uh, those who know less uh, or whose sins may have been uh, nothing like the Hitlers or Stalins or Pol Pots of this world. Um, but uh, then you also have to ask the question, well, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me? Does that mean that uh, no Israelite before uh, the coming of Christ, who obviously never knew who Jesus was, um, that they're all lost and there have never been any Christians who have held to that. So the, the point of the saying must be that uh, whoever God chooses to save, he does so through uh, the death of Christ. But uh, um, if the problem of evil is a huge problem for people, arguably, maybe the second most uh, commonly cited reason is this idea that they think if you become a Christian, you're damning all the people, the millions of people in history who never heard, <clears throat> excuse me, a thing about Jesus. And uh, I don't think that's what Scripture is teaching. So again, I'm talking with Professor Craig Blomberg. We're talking about his new book, Can We Still Believe in God? Um, I, I, want, I really do want to have a conversation about the meaning of miracles, but we're going to hold that and encourage people to read <laughs> about it. Um, uh, this one I found intriguing. I, I was a little surprised that this made the list of 10 Weren't the stories of Jesus made up from Greco-Roman myths? Yeah. Um, there is that, a, is that an issue people have? Like, do people <laughs> honestly not believe that Jesus was a historical figure, and they, they genuinely, honestly don't believe the history surrounding this? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, it was a view that seemed to uh, be dying out uh, up until perhaps 15 or 20 years ago. 
uh, over the course of the 20th century. But uh, some high-profile skeptics, uh, somebody like Richard Carrier, who uh, is especially well-known uh, among university students, um, have written uh, extensively and, and blogged a lot about uh, the unlikelihood of Jesus ever existing. And of course, if you're going to make any uh, attempt at, at buttressing that, you have to say, well, then where did the story come from? And uh, this, is, this is an old uh, idea. It was popular in the 19th century, early 20th century. Scholars pretty much debunked it. But uh, what goes around comes around, and a lot of people are hearing it again. All right, and then let's do um, let's do number ten: the alleged undesirability of the Christian faith. You know, for those of us who are living in the faith, we actually can't even imagine how undesirable it is to live outside of the faith. But apparently, <laughs> we're not making uh, a beautiful demonstration of what it uh, what it is like. Uh, the joy of our salvation. So talk with us a little bit about the alleged undesirability of the Christian faith. We, we probably, um, more so than in a long time, uh, have created the image, and I don't think it's always justified, and I think certain uh, branches of the media play it up and exaggerate it, but we have nevertheless uh, created an image uh, that... Um, Christianity is combative. It is tied to the Republican Party. It uh, goes after uh, homosexuals. It uh, is uh, something that uh, is all about winning a culture war and not a living, vibrant, positive, wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ and some of the neatest people that you could get together with. Um, with the goal of serving humanity and uh, doing countless things to try to make the world a better place. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, your contribution to the conversation. Dr. Craig Blomberg teaches at Denver Seminary. Uh, His most recent book, Can We Still Believe in God? Thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Okay, I want you to keep track uh, today of something. I want you to keep track of how many times you offer an answer to a question that somebody is not asking. All right, so that's my that's my keep track of. I mean, you know, some people keep a food log. They they track how you know they got like a tracker to track their steps. I want us to be tracking today how many times we offer an answer to a question that somebody else is not asking. Um, why is that? Because in order to cultivate our ability as conversationalists in the uh, in the culture today. We actually need to be listening and discerning the question that is being asked, maybe even the question that's behind the question or the question behind the emotion or the question behind the, uh, you know, sometimes people just emote. So what is the question that is behind that? And then how can I draw that person into a conversation where the question that they're really asking is the one that I am also addressing? So... Uh, Not just the question that I want to answer or the question or the answer that I think they need, but what is the question they're really asking? And then how, as a Christian, am I positioned to help them discover the answer? I mean, ultimately, Jesus is the answer that we we know that. We know that. Um, And so let's cry out to him as we prepare to walk 
as his ambassadors in the world that he so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.